Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1 as we will complete this uh, chapter today. Isaiah chapter 1, we will be looking at verses 21 through 31. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help with the text today. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us with it. So many times we read it, we don't understand it, or we look at it and we want to point fingers at Israel or whoever it is that it's about not seeing ourselves in the mirror. Lord, help us to see ourselves also as the ones who need saved, as the ones who don't follow your word, as the ones whom you redeemed. Lord, help us with the text this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I read through this, there's some references to metalworking, and it immediately, of course, made me think of one of my favorite television shows called Forged in Fire. If you haven't watched Forged in Fire, you should. It's about making knives and swords and other weapons, so I mean, what can be wrong with that? Nothing at all, actually. And basically, it's kind of like a, uh, you know, if you've ever seen Chopped on the TV show, you know, or the Food Network, where they, they have to make food from a basket of food. Well, this is where they're making knives from a basket of metal, much better than the food show. And for about first the first half of the show, they're basically faced with some sort of challenge. It's a group of, of, of uh, weaponsmiths and uh, blacksmiths, and they have some sort of odd metal, usually that they have to repurpose into a knife. And on one episode, there was a, they were given a section of elevator cable. And elevator cable is pretty sturdy. If you can imagine this big braided piece of metal cable, almost like a big rope, a couple of inches thick, that's just made of steel. So very thick. And one of the difficulties with that cable, it was not only, of course, you know, actually a hundred pieces of metal bound up in this one piece, but it was also really dirty. Lots of dirt and oil and grease and different things that were going on here. So not only did the Smiths have to keep this cable from fraying at the ends, but they also had to clean it to remove all the impurities from the metal. If they didn't do this, the product that they were creating, their knife, would just have all these imperfections in it and it would affect the performance of the knife. They do these different tests on the knives to try to break them, basically. And the smiths who didn't take the time to clean their cable properly suffered in the end. When the host of the show would test their knives, the ones that still contained these impurities in them would crack or chip or break even, just break right in two because they had all these other things in them. When it came to time to do the work to which they were created... The knives failed. So in our text today, the people of God are compared to metal that has impurities in it. And they have a need for refinement. Over the last few weeks, we have read about what is wrong with Israel. Their rebellion. Their lack of care for their own. Their lack of gratitude toward their caring Heavenly Father. And so today we're going to get another look at this, but just with a little bit of different spin on it. Because of the impending judgment that has been announced to them on the people of God, there's also going to be this hope for redemption that is mentioned. It's very similar to our own plight while we live 
lives of sin and corruption. We hope for the day that when our sanctification, that process of God making us more holy, will be complete, when our own cleaning, so to speak, will be finished, and we'll be with Jesus in glory, this finished product of His. So as we consider our text today, I want to look at three main ideas from it. First, the injustice of Israel, the refinement by fire, and then the return to justice. And so with that, look with me at the text, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21. Please stand together in the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 1, starting at verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who has was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water, your princes are rebels and companions are thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and to the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all of your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called a city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, like a garden without water, and the strong shall become tender and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Amen. This is God's word. may be seated. So just a quick aside as we begin this passage. This passage uh, features a literary device and it's called a chiasm. And that just sounds like a really technical thing, but it's not all that difficult to understand. It's something that was oftentimes used in Hebrew literature. And it comes from this idea of the Greek letter chi, or ki, as it's pronounced by some. And it's the Greek letter chi is just an X. You know, you have these two very broad points at the end, and they come together in the middle, and then they go out broad again. That's exactly what this text does. So look with me, for instance, between the verses 21 and 26. Verses, notice that verse 21, one end of the passage, and verse 26, the other end of the passage, both speak about a faithful city. Righteousness also. One of them speaks about how they've lost that. The other speaks about how they're going to regain that. Verses 22 and 25. 22 speaks about how the silver has become impure. 25 speaks about how that silver needs to be made pure again. And so you kind of see this this whole pattern going on. And look, verses 23 and 24. 23 talks about princes are rebels and companions of thieves. 
24 at the, at the, and 25, or 24 at the end, talks about how, oh, 26, sorry, judges and counselors being restored. And so you get this idea of that happening, and then right there in the middle, where they meet at the crux, the word crux is just another word for cross, where two things cross, there's this bit about their sin. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. This is where the meaning of the text can be found. And so this chiasm is just a way to help us, the reader, understand what the text is about. There are lots of chiasms in the book of Isaiah, and so I thought I would go ahead and talk about this. Some are very big, some are very small, some in the other parts of Hebrew literature. For instance, the entire flood narrative from the time God comes to Noah to the time that he rescues him at the end. It's just one giant, several chapters long chiasm. Some suggest that the entire book of Daniel is actually just a big giant chiasm as well. I think this is just another way for us to enjoy God's word, and I thought it would be helpful. There are lots more in this book, and so I thought an introduction to that idea would be a helpful thing for us. And so we'll begin at the first point, the injustice of Israel. Look with me at verse 21. Right out of the gate here, we have some very strong words that are used concerning the city of Jerusalem. How the unfaithful city has become a whore. She who has, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. And so this term denotes their unfaithfulness. They were now once faithful, but now they have become a whore, unchaste, promiscuous. Typically, when this imagery is used of Israel, and if you just read through sections of any of the prophets, you will know that Israel is oftentimes called this word. Um, There's an entire book of the Old Testament about this, actually, that Israel is that thing. Um, But typically, it concerns Israel going after other gods. Israel leaving their beloved husband, the Lord who took them out of Egypt, and going after the Baals or the Asheroths or whoever or whatever God may be the hot commodity at the time. The text, however, today, we see that of a different image. Her promiscuity is more in dealing with the lack of justice and this immorality, this constant immorality. Look at verse 21. The righteousness lodged in her, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Are lodged in her. It's a city full of murderers. Again, this idea of the general lack of morality from the people of God. Their mixing with the surrounding people has not only affected their worship, but it's it's affected how they treat others as well. You can tell a lot about a person and how they worship by watching how they treat others. And you can actually do vice versa as well. Someone treats others poorly, you can only guess how they worship. A selfish person worships very selfishly, hoping to get something out of it rather than to glorify God. This has become Israel's main objective. Remember reading about King Ahaz several weeks ago. and King Ahaz worshipped the gods that he thought would bring him victory. He actually worshipped the gods of the enemies that were attacking him and beating him because he thought, well, maybe this is 
the way that we're supposed to do it. Not the case. Verse 22 gives us a better picture of this problem. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Silver becoming dross. This is kind of what I was talking about in the introduction. When silver is mined, it's called ore. And ore is not pure. Silver ore is not really called silver ore at all. It's just called ore. And there are lots of other metals in it. And there are lots of other, there's lots of dirt and other things and impurities. And so in order to get the silver out, the good stuff, the expensive stuff, the metalsmiths had to slowly and carefully refine the ore. They had to heat it to really high temperatures to get, to make it turn to liquid essentially. Some of the metals would actually burn off. They would just turn to dust and go away. Others would collect at the top of this molten silver and they could be skimmed off like all the other dirt and other garbage that was in the metal. The smith could do that. He could take them off. He could take it out or if he didn't, wasn't careful enough that in those impurities would become part of the metal and they would scar it. The more pure the silver was, the more money the smith could get for it. So removing the dross, removing the impurities was of utmost importance for the smith. If he heated it too hot, the metal was ruined. If he didn't heat it enough, the impurities would stay in there. And so it was a very precise science for the ancient world. And so he goes on to verse 23. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Rather than bringing justice to the helpless, what are they doing? Instead, they're seeking to make themselves rich. The rich get richer. The poor get poorer. They're not princes and companions. They are rebels and thieves. They do not seek righteous gain, but instead they seek bribes and handouts. You kind of get this picture. This picture exists in our own world today. And all the while, forgetting those who cannot help themselves at all, the widows and the orphans. In those days, if you were a widow or an orphan, you had to beg. That was the only way to get your food or anything for that matter. And I think this is a definite call for us as believers today, especially because we know the creator. We know the master smith, as it were. We have absolutely no excuse for this kind of injustice at all in our lives. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10, and I'll show you. If I were to sum up the book of Deuteronomy in a single sentence, it would say, here's the law again, and you still don't get it. And so I think this picture in Deuteronomy 10 is a very good idea of this. Deuteronomy 10, looking at starting at verse 17 and going through 22. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Notice the, uh, notice the opposite of what we saw of the people of Israel. He executes justice for the fatherless 
the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Now a command to the people of Israel, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt seventy persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the heavens. What did he do for Egypt? They were the helpless ones. They were the sojourners. They were the widows and orphans. They went down to Egypt. They were 70 when they went to Egypt. And when they went out of Egypt, because the Lord brought them out by doing, as he said, great and terrifying things before their eyes. Exactly that's what they were. Making the entire Red Sea stand on its end would not be, it would be very terrifying for all of us to see. They went down 70 and they came out as numerous as the stars in the sky. Fulfillment of the promise he gave to Abraham. Consider everything that they did, that he did for Israel as a nation. And how did they repay God? How did they repay his goodness and mercy with injustice? So for us, brothers and sisters, consider all that we have been given. Consider how we were once orphans and widows and sojourners. Consider how we in many ways still are sojourners in this strange land that doesn't make sense to us or in Christ. And we have a God that takes care of us. How then will we treat others? How will we repay the goodness that God has given us? It's a question that we have to continually ask ourselves. Not only do we show our salvation through how we treat folks, but also we get better at what he's called us to do by doing. And that brings me to this next point, the refinement by fire. Look with me at verse 24 back in Isaiah chapter 1. Because so ba- because they did not bring justice and because they have not helped the fatherless and the widow. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will get relief from my enemies. I will avenge myself on my foes. Who are these enemies and foes that he is talking about? It's his own people. He plans to turn against them. That's how the rest of this book plays out, actually. Assyria is coming for the northern kingdom. Babylon is coming from the southern, coming for the southern kingdom. Eventually, they're all going to be taken away. This is the Lord's doing himself. And what is his purpose behind this? Verse 25, I will turn my hand against you and I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. Notice what the Lord's plan for them is. What is the purpose of the smith? Is it to completely destroy the metal that he puts into the fire? It's to purify it. It's to make it better. It's to make it more for him for him for his own glory this isn't simply to snuff them out if he had chosen to snuff israel out 
just read some of the stories from the Old Testament. When the Lord decides to do something against the people, they go away. He did not choose to snuff all of them out. But he used a fire, the furnace of his wrath, not only as a tool of wrath, but also as a tool of redemption. Oftentimes, we want to compartmentalize God as if he has switches that he flips on and off at different times. Sometimes he flips on the love switch and he loves us. Sometimes the wrath switch and then the love switch goes off and now he hates us. Sometimes he's patient with us. Sometimes he's angry with us. He's never all of those things. He can only be one of those things because, well, we can't be all those things and he must be like us. In one of my seminary classes, a student asked the professor if God was ever not angry. And the professor replied, and it's this, help, this reply helped me understand the nature of God. And he said, does he ever not love? Is there ever a time where God isn't something whom he is? He's always the things that he is. He isn't temperamental like us. His emotions don't change on a dime because he has a plan from the foundations of the earth. And that is to leave a remnant. That is to have a people that he will call his own. That he will come to save. And his plan is not only for that people's redemption, but that plan is also for their purification. For their sanctification. Why do they need it? Because they, us, we are a stiff-necked people. It requires these sorts of methods to get our attention. I will smelt away the dross. Sounds all nice and everything, but to remove the dross from the metal, this requires a very hot fire. This requires pain and difficulty. And look for our text this morning and, and uh, our call to worship in Psalm 66. One of the things was, Oh God, you have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. We went through fire and water. Yet you have brought us safely to a spacious place. Who brought them to a safe, safe place? God. Who put them through fire? God. Both. Turn with me, well not yet, Proverbs 17.3, just listen to this one and then you can go ahead and be turning to 1 Peter. Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. That's exactly what's going on. 1 Peter, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. people that Peter was writing to had difficult times ahead of them. And this is how Peter categorizes those times. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded 
through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Notice, this has nothing to do with their guarantee of where their security is kept. Their security is undefiled, unfading, imperishable, kept in heaven for you. But what's going to happen while they're on earth? A little while, if necessary, you have been grieved with various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though though it tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Pretty incredible. What's the purpose of the trials? What's the purpose of the difficulty? For the tested genuineness of our faith. Ultimately, why is that? For the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a hard teaching. Because we want Christianity. We want a Christianity that doesn't require any difficulty on our part. We want to think that we, if we simply believe that all will be well today, right now. And I get to define what that is. Of course, yes, we have this eternal thing that is good and all, and but we want it good right now, where we are. That's not how this works. The Lord has a plan for us, and it is for our sanctification. It is for our completion in Him. And part of that sanctification process is for us, His people, to go through the fire. For the dross to be burned off. For the impurities to be incinerated. And this isn't going to be an easy process. It's not. But the same God who tries us in the fire is the one that stood in the fire on our behalf. We don't worship a God that can't relate with our trials, but one who has suffered through them all. The Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, suffered trials unimaginable. He suffered pain inexpressible. And He didn't have any dross to remove. He didn't have any impurities that needed to be dealt with. He suffered that for us. And how, and he did that for my dross, for my impurities, for all the bad things that I bring to the table. And he did it knowing that I would be ungrateful, that I would be unjust and lack mercy. He did it knowing that I would treat people poorly one day that I would not love him with all my heart, soul, mind and strength but that is the God we worship the one who went through the fire for us even while we were his enemies he did that and that brings me to the third point the return of justice verse 26 I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning Afterward, you shall be called a city of righteousness, a faithful city. Why did the judges and counselors need to be restored? To restore justice, to restore mercy, to restore those things that had gone away so that the helpless could be helped, so that the corruption and the murder would all stop, so that the lawbreakers would be punished. It's a very good thing. So that the city that was once called a whore is now going to be called righteous again. So the one that was called 
bad is now called good, so that the one that was called faithless is now called faithful. It has nothing to do with that city, by the way. It's not because they decided to clean themselves up. It's because the Master did it for them. Verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Zion is just another name for Jerusalem often used in the Scriptures. And they shall be redeemed by justice. But notice, who is redeemed? The repentant. Righteousness and justice shall reign again when repentance reigns again. It is repentance that is the ultimate sign of the sanctification of a believer. Ultimately, when I was in youth ministry, lots of parents would come to me and they would ask me, how do they know if their child is a believer or not? How do I know if my child is, is truly a believer? You know, we don't have these altar call moments in our churches. And so they, were, they didn't know. They didn't have a date that little Johnny went down and prayed. And so I would ask them if they see any fruit of repentance in the life of their child. Because repenting is what believers do. Unbelievers don't see a need for repentance because they sit on the throne of their own world. Or at least they think they do. They don't see themselves as wrong. They see everyone else as wrong. The believer sees themselves as being as needing repentance. They see a need of it because if they don't, they know that God is in control. And even though they are saved, as a believer we're saved, repentance doesn't keep us saved. God's not going to throw us out. But we still come to Him in repentance, not to be saved again, but to show that we are saved. Repentant people are grateful people. There are people who value justice and mercy and who seek righteousness rather than rebellion every time. The last few verses here in 28 and forward show this kind of idea. It shows the plight of the rebellious and their ultimate end. There's some here about some gardens as you read that they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and shall blush for the gardens because the people in Jerusalem valued these gardens that were full of idols rather than valuing this whole city that God had given them and it causes them to blush and shame. And then it talks about how they shall be turned to Dry branches, the oak whose leaf withers, the garden without water, the strong shall become tender and his work a spark, and they shall burn together with none to quench them. This isn't talking about these coming earthly enemies that are on their way, Assyria and Babylon. This is talking about the eternal enemy that they have who are unrepentant. Those who are unrepentant have one enemy, and it is the Creator the God of the universe, and he will not destroy their bodies on earth like Assyria or Babylon would, but he will destroy their souls in hell. Again, remember, just like we looked at last week at verse 19, when does the Lord bring blessing? If they're willing and obedient, if they're repentant, they shall have this blessing. And this goes back to my introduction with the knives. Which ones perform the best? The ones that had those impurities removed. This illustration breaks down a bit because, well, 
the human smith is going to make mistakes all the time, constantly. Even the Beth Smiths make mistakes, and this leads to the knife being faulty. But in our case, it's not the fault with the smith. It's the fault with the knife. It's us. When we attempt to do the work of the Lord with an ungrateful heart, it will be a broken work. It will be no good. And it isn't that we can't do good things, it's just that our heart won't be right. And we'll talk about this in Sunday school today when we talk about giving. How can we do justice if we refuse to let go of the dross that's in our lives? How can we do righteousness if we refuse to repent? We can't. Thankfully, for those of us who are in Christ, our Lord doesn't need our permission to work on our hearts. If He did, we would never be worked on. He doesn't need our permission to mold us into His workmanship, even in spite of ourselves, and that's what He does, thankfully. But the ones who continually kick against the work of God will show themselves to not be of God at all. And so that's something that we have to ask ourselves. So in conclusion... For Israel and Judah, the time of purification awaits them at the hands, ultimately, of Assyria and Babylon. But even then, they're not going to get it right. They're going to be exiled, and they're going to come back, and they're going to struggle. Even when Jesus came, they rejected Him, as they still do. But the Lord Himself preserved for Himself a remnant, His people whom He came to save. And it's us, that church, that must go through times of fire and difficulty. Not in order to be saved. Jesus did that. But for our sanctification, let us be a people who are faithful, who are just. Let us be a people who see the sanctifying work of God as a blessing in our lives. And when those trials come, let us give glory and honor to God for doing this work in our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that you stood in the fire for us. Ultimately, the work of salvation was done by you. We do nothing to earn it. But we also know that in in you, in our lives, in you, we will have times of difficulty. And we know that these times are here because you have brought them on. So that we can be tried and tested so that we would be approved, your workmanship, to do the things that you've called us to do. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful. Without you, we are completely faithless. We'll turn into ourselves. But with you, we can be faithful and we can do your works. It's in your name we pray. Amen.